Blog Talk Radio. Hello, Eastern family and friends. This begins the first of many episodes that we will be broadcasting each week. We've titled the series, Memories of a Great Airline, as told by the people of Eastern Airlines. Kind of a long title, but it says what the show will be about. Stories by former Eastern people and friends of this former airline. Your storytellers will be reading stories found in the many publications, the Eastern publications, from 1927 until today, as we receive recall memories of those sending us their stories to be told on the air. The radio show is part of the Eastern Airline Radio Show and the Airline Radio Talk Show, which is done each Saturday at 1 p.m., the same listening tune-in is still blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie. That's C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E. Blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie. And as you would listen to the talk show heard on Saturday, except the new show will be broadcast on Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. No need to call in as it is pre-recorded, which is what we call podcasting, and usually runs about an hour per each episode. If you miss the broadcast at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, you can always listen 
at your convenience by clicking on the episode number. Mr. Harry Lindquist and Captain Neil Holland will be the initial storytellers, but others will be joining the show as we continue to go on air. Harry was a former Eastern employee in the pilot scheduling department. Neil was a pilot based in Atlanta. The show was created to fill in the gap of Eastern Airlines memories that the airline radio talk show does not broadcast to the extent it did for the past 11 years. Highlights of the show will be sent out each week via Facebook on the Internet. You can also find the content in the archive with a description of each broadcast. In addition to these great stories and memories, we will insert the Eastern TV and radio ads from the 40s to the very last commercial run by Eastern. We hope you enjoy both the stories and Eastern commercials. Now, let's start the show with this first story as read by Harry Lindquist. Harry? There was much speculation about Eddie's future career decision. Most people believed he would return to auto racing. He had no interest in racing or even post-war aviation. With some 3,000 trained pilots in the Army Air Service and over 15,000 skilled aircraft mechanics soon becoming available, he saw no immediate opportunity in aviation. During the war, Eddie had sent the majority of his income to his mother, so now he was broke. His only income now came from a 40-day Liberty Bond and lecture tour for a fee of $1,000 per appearance. Eddie was a poor speaker, but eventually improved his delivery skills. Eddie's financial situation improved when Driggs accepted a deal with the McClure Syndicate for Eddie's memoir, Serial Rights. On on February 26, he signed a contract with the Frederick A. Stokes Company to publish Fighting the Flying Circus. Leo gave him a $6,000 advance, with the royalties eventually totaling around $25,000. The book retailed at $1.50 each and received good views. reviews. At the end, in mid-1919, Eddie was promoted for his work in release from the Army. Though he was now a major, he preferred the nickname Captain Eddie, which would stick with him the remainder of his life. Captain Eddie was offered numerous deals to endorse products like cigarettes, chewing gum, clothing, and more. He was offered $100,000 by German-born film magnate Carl Lamell at Universal City of California to appear in a movie. He turned these offers down. Here he was in the summer of 1919, still trying to decide what he was trying to do for, for a living. He received an offer from Curtis to sell airplanes for a salary of $25,000 and $10,000 expense account. He considered it, but Curtis was losing their military contracts and was in deep debt. The aviation business still looked bleak. On June 10th, Eddie was approached by two promoters from Sandusky, Ohio, who wanted to start a car company under the name Rickenbacker Motor Company. Eddie dismissed the deal, but it continued to be on his mind. At a dinner in New York on October 6th with an old racing friend, driver, and automotive engineer, Harry Cunningham, the idea came up. Four days later, Eddie met with industrialist Walter Flanders in Detroit to get his advice. Flanders told him to see multimillionaire Brian F. Everett, who along with Flanders and William Metzger had developed an automobile called the EMF, which was the Everett-Metzger-Flanders. Eddie's lunch meeting yielded some interest in the proposition. 
At the end of October, Everett and Flanders shook hands with Eddie on an agreement to produce a high-quality car under the Rickenbacker Motor Company name. While the new company was being established, Eddie felt he needed more experience in selling cars and took a job in 1920 as a California distributor selling GM's mid-price Sheridan four-cylinder car. Headquartered in San Francisco, Eddie began interviewing applicants for dealerships and built a network of 27 dealerships that purchased some 700 cars. The recession in 1921 hurt sales, and in August of 1921, GM stopped making the Sheridan. Meanwhile, the Rickenbacker Motor Company gained its incorporation charter in July of 1921 with a capitalization of $5 million. Everett became the president, and Eddie was the vice president of sales. They acquired the former Distill Will factory with 27.5 acres and 380,000 square feet of floor space to produce the new car. In the December edition of Motor World, the first pictures of the car were displayed. There were three models. The five-passenger Phaeton sold for $1,495. The four-seat coupe went for $1,885. And the five-passenger sedan sold for $1,985. The cars all had six-cylinder engines with unique balanced tandem crankshaft flywheels. They were beautiful luxury machines with wallet steering wheels, headlights of the Rolls-Royce design, with excellent easy riding qualities. The car could go 246 miles on 7.01 gallons with an average of 35.0 miles per gallon. The first orders were taken at the New York Automobile Show and for the first 27 cars rolled out of the factory during 1922. By March 11th, production was up to 18 cars per day. On May 10th, the 1,000th car came off the assembly line and in September, the factory built 2,500 cars. They were in business now. Eddie began to travel around the country, showing off the cars, and signing on de dealerships as he went. Back in 1921, while walking along Fifth Avenue in New York, Eddie had run into Adelaide Frost Durant, the wife of the wealthy race car driver, Russell Clifford Durant, who was the son of the founder of GM, William C. Durant. Adelaide, who had been separated from Clifford for years, spent her time traveling around the world. Eddie started a relationship with Adelaide, and after she received her divorce from Clifford, they were married in September 1922 in Greenwich, Connecticut. They sailed off for a long European honeymoon. On Sunday, September 8th, Eddie Rickenbacker turned 32 years old in Paris. The first year of Rickenbacker auto production had yielded 3,709 cars, and by July 19, 1923, they had built the 10,000 vehicle. Sales for 1923 had produced a profit of $407,175 on 8,539 cars and paid a dividend to investors of 6.5%. That year, the company announced that the 1924 editions would have four-wheel brakes as standard equipment. These type brakes had been used in Europe since 1909, but were for a novelty in the U.S., Though all the American automobile companies were working on four-wheel brakes, several tried to sabotage Rickenbacker for being first. Studebaker led the charges and ran full-page advertisements in newspapers that four-wheel brakes are unnecessary, mechanically impractical, and dangerous in the hands of unskilled drivers. Sales began to falter in 1924 with the four-wheel brake issue a new eight-cylinder engine model that frustrated dealers holding six-cylinder models at mid-year. 
On top of all of this, a recession began in 1925 that slowed down the general economy. Everett tried to negotiate several mergers, but he failed. Eddie pushed their latest vehicle in the 1926 New York Auto Show, the 107-horsepower Supersport 8 that sold for the astounding high-end price of $5,000. Only 14 were purchased, and 1926 sales plummeted to 5,400 cars. Eddie decided to resign from the company in September 1926 over disagreements with Everett. Rickenback Motor Company went into receivership the next year. Eddie had tried to help out the dealers, but he left with a personal $250,000 debt he promised to pay back. Later, he did just that. In spite of his debt, Eddie was able to get a loan from an admirer, Frank Blair, the president of Union Guardian Trust Company of Detroit, and purchased the Indianapolis Speedway for $700,000. Eddie, the new president, received 51% of the stock, with the bank keeping the remainder. The raceway opened on November 7, 1927, but was later closed in December 1941 after World War II. He kept the asset until November 1945 when he sold it to Anton Holman, a Terre Haute, Indiana businessman, for $750,000. Out of work now, in 1928, Eddie took a job with GM, first as a sales manager with the Cadillac division and then for the new LaSalle. When GM acquired Fokker Aircraft from the Western Air Express deal, Eddie took the leadership reins. He resigned that role in March of 1932 when, as a result of the aftermath of the 1929 stock market crash, Fokker moved its headquarters to Baltimore. Then he was on to American Airways and to Eastern Air Transport. Captain Eddie had much to be proud of after having convinced the GM to buy out North American Aviation. Now GM had diversified into aviation and was positioned to survive the Great Depression. At EAT, the senior, vice, the senior management team had Tom Doe staying on as its president, Harold Elliott as vice president and general manager, and Charlie Dolan as vice president of operations. Captain Eddie, now vice president of public relations, was surprised that Breach had not let him take over immediately upon the acquisition. Running an airline was no small task, and Eddie's brief period at Fokker was not enough in Breach's eyes to take on EAT. In 1933, EAT started the Condor Sleeper Service between New York and Atlanta. Originally, there were two berths on board, but the service was so popular, the Condors were reconfigured to six berths. EAT also began a daily 13-hour Condor service from New York to Miami, which required it to increase the Condor fleet to 14 aircraft. The only other major event for EAT that year was the acquisition of the nearly bankrupted Ludington line of seven Stinsons for the bottom basement price of $260,000. Ludington had lost its bid for the New York to Washington airmail route going to EAT, even though it offered the post office department the lowest bid of 25 cents per mile, EAT's bid was 89 cents per mile. It was this takeover of Ludington that would start the infamous airmail scandal. The scandal began when Fulton Lewis Jr., a young reporter for the Hearst newspapers, had lunch with an officer of the Ludington line who mentioned the problems they had encountered with the airmail contract. Lewis did some research into the post office records and discovered a series of like transgressions. 
Armed with his research material, he took it to his boss, an owner of the chain of newspapers, William Randolph Hearst. Hearst understood the report would be politically damaging to his party and flatly refused publication of Lewis's reports. Lewis turned to Hugo L. Black, the small-town lawyer and senior senator from Alabama, who in September 1933 agreed to create a special Senate committee to investigate the allegations of wrongdoing. The core issue was that since 1930, Hoover's Postmaster General, Walter F. Brown, had awarded airmail routes to the larger air carriers in order to suppress and eliminate the small carriers from the industry. While ignoring competitive bids between July 1930 and January 1934, Lewis's data showed that these overpayments totaled some $47 million. Black recommended to the new president, Franklin D. Roosevelt, that the airmail contracts should be canceled since they were fraudulent. Roosevelt agreed, and on February 9, he summoned the chief of the Army Air Service, Major General Benjamin Fuloy, to the White House. FDR asked Fuloy if the Army could begin airmail services in 10 days. Not wanting to, to be confirm Billy Mitchell's uh, constant claim that the Army Air Service was in a poor state of res readiness, Fuloy answered, Yes, sir. That afternoon at 4 p.m., Jim Farley, the new Postmaster General, announced in a White House press conference that effective at midnight on February 19th, all airmail contracts were canceled. Rickenbacker knew what was going to happen. He registered his protest to the President's decision in the front page of many U.S. newspapers. From his office at GM, one foggy morning, he said the following to reporters, The thing that bothers me is that what is going to happen to these young Army pilots on a day like this, their ships are not equipped with blind flying instruments, and their training, while excellent for military duty, is not uh, adapted for flying the airmail. Either they are going to pile up ships all across the continent, or they are not going to be able to fly the mail on schedule. Three Army pilots crashed and died on the way to pick up the mail on the first day of operation. From California, Rickenbacker told reporters the loss of the pilots was legalized murder. It made the headlines. Rickenbacker went, was in California at the request of TWA President Jack Fry. Fry had called him as soon as he heard of the canceled airmail contracts. He remarked, Rick, we've got to do something that will show the public we're better qualified to fly the mail than the Army. Rickenbacker replied, I couldn't agree with you more. What the hell do you have in mind? She's awkward. Um, not very friendly. Ah, uh, but she's too young. Oh, she's, uh, oh, she bites nails. She wears glasses, uh, 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 honey, uh, no, no, the other, uh, oh, no, oh, she's married. Well, uh, well. Eastern presents The Losers. Immature. 19 out of 20 girls we see never get to be an Eastern Airlines stewardess. They're probably good enough to get a job anywhere they want. But at Eastern, we're very choosy about whom we let serve you on a plane. It may make our job a lot harder, but it makes your flying a lot easier. We want everyone to fly. Oh, the girl with the glasses. Uh, no, the, uh, honey, uh, wait, uh, if you...
This story is taken from the book, The Wings of Many. The title of the story is Nostalgia Corner, DC Three Days, A True Story. One day, shortly after the end of World War II, Bud Vanderford, station manager at Nashville, had just closed out the flight and returned to his desk to take care of some paperwork. Then, in stalked one of the control tower operators. Normally, this individual was a quiet, easygoing, happy-go-lucky person, but not this day. Rather, he skipped normal greetings and with a very definite I've been had expression on his face, he blurted out, Who's that clown flying Flight 181? Bud thought better of giving out names under the circumstances and instead he asked, What happened? The visitor then continued, Well, this so-and-so called back after I gave him his ATC clearance and airport information and said he was new on this run and would be most grateful if I'd tell him the way from here to Birmingham. I told him to hold on a minute, and I'd get my charts and give him a heading. Before I could do so, he came roaring back at me and said, Hold on, Tower. I don't want any of the degree stuff. Just point me in the right direction. Well, by this time, Bud was approaching the choking stage, but he was not about to foul this one up and ask, Well, what happened then? Well, said his visitor, I had given him clearance for takeoff on runway 20, and since takeoff on the run this runway is just about the right heading from Birmingham, I pointed out those two hills a few miles south of the field and assured me he could see them well. So I told him to fly directly between them and we'd be right on course. Then he said, the captain's reply to these instructions was, man, that's exactly what I wanted. Thanks a million. You're a gentleman and a scholar. See you next trip. Well, as you may have guessed, Bud completely cracked up at this point and his visitor became so upset that he left without learning that he had been had by the old master himself, Captain George F. Boost, naturally. Car 54, where are you? Airplane 851, where are you? This story is written by Captain William or Bill Pappy. It was March 9, 1984, and I had just checked in at Atlanta for a three-day sequence. All that was scheduled on this day was a non-stop Atlanta to Providence leg, followed by a 12-hour layover. The forms agent advised that Atlanta Maintenance wanted to know if we would test hop the plane scheduled for the trip. As most remember, test tops were voluntary, and I discussed the request with the first officer, H. Gilbert, and the second officer, A. Harvey. Both agreed to do it, and I phoned the maintenance supervisor. He told me that the plane was just out of the hangar where a pressurization problem had been corrected, but Miami wanted a test flight flown before any passengers were carried. He added that the plane was on the gate, fueled, and ready to go. Second Officer Harvey went to the gate and asked the forms agent for the paperwork for the flight. It had been given a flight number of 2301, but there was no flight plan uh, in the papers. When questioned about the flight plan, the agent said that neither he nor the computer filed flight plans for test tops. Well, that's no big deal. We can just get a Atlanta approach control to let us fly in their airspace while doing what we needed to do quick then, quickly return. 
We met Second Officer Harvey in the jetway, and he told us that a man from engineering was going to go and accompany us. In the Ford galley stood a guy in a coat and tie with a briefcase and a clipboard. He explained that he needed to see the airplane at flight level 370 and that he had his two-page checklist of items to go through with Second Officer Harvey. The list included shutting down the AC packs, that's the air conditioning packs, and lots of other stuff. Well, so much for a little spin around the pattern in Atlanta. We need to file a flight plan of some kind in order to do this, and we need to do it now. The form agent had already told me that he has no dealings with flight plans of this kind, of this kind. so I figured it was up to me to just get it done. I went into the gate area and phoned Atlanta Flight Service and told the briefer that I wanted to file an IFR flight plan. The briefer said that he was ready to copy, and I launched off November 851-EA, a Boeing 727-A, true airspeed 475 knots, departing Atlanta in 25 minutes, requesting flight level 370, and gave him a requested route of flight to Jacksonville and back to Atlanta. I told him to put in the remarks section that no landing would be made in Jacksonville and finished all the required information that included my name, address, and my phone number and hung up. Back in the cockpit, we did the checklist. First Officer Gilbert told Atlanta Clearance Delivery what was going on, and we soon had the clearance for November 851-EA in hand. Engines were started. We powered back and were on our way to nowhere at flight level 370. Since this was no regular flight and Second Officer Harvey was busy with the engineer, none of us called in out or off times to the company. None of us monitored the company radio frequency as into the night we climbed while the guys in the back were working their way through two pages on that clipboard. About three-quarters of the way to Jacksonville, it was decided we could head back to Atlanta while the remainder of the checks and tests were completed. Back on the ground in Atlanta, 2nd Officer Harvey called for a gate. Where have you guys been? was the response. Just as we cleared the gate area, a decision had been made to use another airplane for the Atlanta Providence flight, and the company had been trying to get ATC or anybody to contact us and tell us to return. We did not answer calls on the company frequencies, and ATC had no record of an Eastern 2301 on any of their frequencies because we were on file as November 851-EA. Plain old November 851-EA, a Boeing 727-A, being flown by some guy from Gainesville, Georgia, who usually filed flight plans for a white and red Comanche 250. We had quite simply disappeared with aircraft 851 to parts totally unknown for one hour and 35 minutes. Anyway, since we had been found, we were to get to the gate where our aircraft had been fueled, pre-flighted, and loaded with the people. 
We heard to the gate, and after a brief explanation to the passengers about where their mystery flight crew had been, we were off and had a nice flight to Providence. Airplane 851 had also successfully completed a very thorough test of its pressurization pressurization system, and I never heard a word about why I had disappeared for over one and a half hours with a Boeing 727. This story is taken from the book, The Wings of Many. The title of the story is Nostalgia Corner, DC Three Days, A True Story. One day, shortly after the end of World War II, Bud Vanderford, station manager at Nashville, had just closed out the flight and returned to his desk to take care of some paperwork. Then, in stopped one of the control tower operators. Normally, this individual was a quiet, easygoing, happy-go-lucky person. But not this day. Rather, he skipped normal greetings, and with a very definite I've-been-had expression on his face, he blurted out, Who's that clown flying Flight 181? Bud thought better of giving out names under the circumstances, and instead he asked, What happened? The visitor then continued, Well, this so-and-so called back after I gave him his ATC clearance and airport information, and said he was new on this run and would be most grateful if I'd tell him the way from here to Birmingham. I told him to hold on a minute, and I'd get my charts and give him a heading. Before I could do so, he came roaring back at me and said, Hold on, Tower. I don't want any of the degree stuff. Just point me in the right direction. Well, by this time, Bud was approaching the choking stage, but he was not about to foul this one up and ask, Well, what happened then? Well, said his visitor, I had given him clearance for takeoff on runway 20, and since takeoff on the run, this runway is just about the right heading for Birmingham, I pointed out those two hills a few miles south of the field and assured me he could see them well. So I told him to fly directly between them and we'd be right on course. Then he said the captain's reply to these instructions was, Man, that's exactly what I wanted. Thanks a million. You're a gentleman and a scholar. See you next trip. This story is from Newswing, the house organ of Pitcairn Aviation, uh, it dated uh, from Philadelphia, October 1928. There was quite a bit of excitement up and down the line during September. Gene Brown and Dick Merrill, on two successive nights, saved families who were asleep in burning houses. In both cases, our pilots flew down low to awaken neighbors who warned the occupants of the burning dwellings in time for them to escape. Early in September, Ambrose Banks was speeding along over Maryland on his southbound trip when something loomed up in front of him that appeared to be a dense cloud of very regular, uh, regular outline. As he was almost on top of it, the form and consistency of the cloud seemed so unusual that Banks instinctively pulled back his stick and zoomed over it. Looking back, he discovered a small light which had not been visible from the other side. He turned and circled around and the obstruction and turned on his landing lights to discover that it was the Navy dirigible, Los Angeles, that he escaped hitting by such a narrow margin.
looking for the Magic Kingdom. Do you know the way? Please, sir! Do you know the way to the Magic Kingdom? <laughs> do you know the way to the Magic Kingdom? Sure I do. Well, can you fly? You can fly to a Magic Kingdom that's right outside your hotel window. To Walt Disney World in Florida. On Eastern, the airline of Walt Disney World. The airline that believes dreams really can come true. The Wings of Man. Our next story is from The Wings of Minnie. It's uh, related by ca our own Captain Neil Holland on a trip he was on several years ago. I think many of you listening today are probably former air crew members, uh, airline employees that did a lot of travel and can relate to this story. You thought you had a lot of time to get ready. Uh, you looked at the clock wrong. Uh, you had the wrong time in mind. Whatever reason, you think you've got plenty of time to dilly-dally, and then all of a sudden it hits you. You're late. This is a story related by Captain Neal. He titled this uh, story, Boom Boom. I was a favorite trip on my A300 flight from Atlanta to Los Angeles where I intended to get in a visit with my son, his wife, and my grandson. It was high on my bid sheet each month as I had a business in Los Angeles operated by my son and it was nice to check in each week using my own executive aircraft, an Airbus A300 with a crew of nine. I carried about 250 guests to pay the operational cost fuel, and my excellent breakfast served by a very attractive flight attendant. Arriving at my reserved parking space in the terminal, I gathered my flight bag and checked with my first and second officers about her departure the next morning, which I did a quick glance at my bid sheet to confirm in my mind was 9 a.m. I told my crew that I would be going to Rocket Car Rental to pick up my reserved car at the special airline crew rates of $15 a day, including 100 free miles. Eventually, I would buy a 1974 Ford Pinto station wagon, but that's another story. All went well with a visit with my family, dinner, and a quick check of the business status, even though time for my drive back to the Marriott from Covina for a visit to the top of the Marriott in the beautiful piano bar music. After dropping off my rocket car and a complimentary ride back to the terminal the next morning, I still had plenty of time for breakfast and whatever parts of the Sunday LA Times I could find left behind by TWA's boarding passengers just across from the hall from our gates. Our flight was the first flight out this morning and there would be no passengers around our gate for another half hour or so. Coming into the main entrance doors of the North Terminal Complex serving Eastern, TWA and a few additional airlines, I immediately noticed a blonde haired woman in very short shorts and a t-shirt with two words printed in a strategic area that said boom boom. Since I was early and had extra time I would see which lucky airline she was flying. I walked a comfortable distance behind and figured that since she was heading toward TWA's gates she was booked on the early morning departure to St. Louis. She seemed in a hurry to reach her departure gate. I peeled off to the restaurant once we reached our gate area. 
Here I found a couple of sections of the LA Times and took a table near the corridor just in case she decided to order coffee or have breakfast. I ordered my favorite breakfast of eggs over easy, hash browns, two strips of bacon and dry toast, and a pot of coffee. They gave crew members a 10% discount and and out to what you would pay at the Marriott, which was not really a bargain. I had nearly finished my cup of coffee when our gate agent came over to ask if I was deadheading or pass-riding crew member. I told him neither, that I had a trip later this morning and asked if there was a problem. He asked if I was qualified on the A300 because a captain was missing for a flight to Atlanta. I said yes and told him since I was very early for my Atlanta flight, I would see if I could get crew scheduling to allow me to take the flight that was now already late by 30 minutes. Canceling my breakfast and paying for the coffee, I hurried to the gate and out of the jetway. Reaching the service door at the end, I quickly descended the metal stairs to the ground. Upon stepping onto the ramp, I heard my name called out, coming from the direction above me, which was the captain's sliding side window. Hey, Neil, where the hell have you been? shouted my first officer. I called back. What are you doing on this flight? The answer came back as one I did not want to hear. This is our flight. Back up the outside stairs, I went, and upon entering the passenger boarding area of the plane, the flight attendant greeted me with better late than never. Since it was the center boarding door, I had to walk past nearly half of my passengers on a full aircraft. An immediate loud applause broke throughout the aircraft. The captain had arrived and the flight could depart. Embarrassed tremendously, I strode toward the flight deck when I noticed a pair of shapely legs missing the bottom part of a proper apparel. I saw the passenger wore short shorts and the familiar words boom boom across the strategic area of her t-shirt. It was my boom boom. She was on my flight after all. Wow. At this point in my career, I had never been late for a flight. Like most pilots, I always had three and sometimes four systems to tell the brain to start the wake-up process at a set time. First, the wake-up call, which I always worried if the new person assigned to this early morning detail was himself awake to carry out the assignment, as had happened more than a few times over 26 years. Second was the bedside clock, which had more buttons and dials than the second officer's panel of an L-1011. The instruction on the clock were same color as the clock, making, making it impossible to read without a magnifying glass. Most of these clocks would require a manual to explain how to set AM or PM, much less which station I wanted to awaken me. Country, classical, top ten hits, or my favorite, loud, heavy metal. If these first two failed, I had my Seiko calculator watch with a built-in alarm program that I always set and placed in the nightstand ashtray for further amplification. The fourth is the buddy system, which if used would be your first or second officer hitting the wall in his next door room. However, this was not the problem for being late for my flight, which will I, I will explain toward the end of this tale. I told the first officer if he could shave off at least 15 minutes on his leg to fly home, I would buy him the biggest steak dinner at a restaurant of his choice. And at this point, I wasn't too concerned about fuel. In other words, put the metal pedal to the metal, and a high-speed buffet would not be annoying. Upon giving these instructions, I picked up the PA and explained to the passengers my tardiness, ensuring them that we would be cutting at least 15 minutes from our scheduled flying time. The senior flight attendant, one of my favorite Atlanta-based flight attendants, come up and said, Neil, 
I, I believed every word you said, but could that little boom-boom sitting in 5B have anything to do with it? No, but if you don't believe me, why don't you ask her, I said. Somewhere over New Mexico, the senior flight attendant brought my breakfast with an envelope on the, on the tray. The lovely script to my captain was on the cover, and it seemed to have a hint of perfume. Opening the envelope, I found a note written on a food tray doily. To my captain, thanks for the lovely evening last night, and I hope the lateness of the hour we said goodnight will not be a problem, since you did mention you had an early flight back to Atlanta. The dinner at the top of the Marriott, the drinks, and dancing to the great piano music was a night I will remember for a very long time. With hopes of doing it again on your next trip to L.A., I remain a very special friend, signed Boom Boom. Of course, at the bottom of the note was a lipstick print of Boom Boom. I still have the note after 25 years. My first officer did knock off the entire 30 minutes. The schedule back had a built-in delay of a few minutes. However, on Sunday it worked to our advantage because of our light traffic coming into Atlanta. My second officer gave me a note that came from flight operations in the chief pilot's office. It said that I was to see him first thing Monday morning to explain why the flight was late, leaving the gate by 30 minutes. It was the first trip of the month that had a scheduled change of one hour. An earlier departure from the trip I had checked on the pilot bid sheet scheduled the day before. Entering the chief pilot's office and closing the door, I feared I was going to have a few expletives directed at me. I handed over the official report for the records with an attachment, the Boom Boom Food Trade Doily. He read it, looked up at me over his reading glasses, and said, Get the hell out of here. I did, but not until I retrieved my note from Boom Boom. And here's an additional note from Captain Deal on this story. On the Johnny Carson TV show, Johnny had the Boom Boom Girls, wearing outfits much like the Hooter Girls, appear on his show. They actually earned their notoriety by playing volleyball on Santa Monica Beach near the pier. You can take your family to a place where dreams are born. Walt Disney World on Eastern, the airline with more flights from more cities to Walt Disney World than any other airline. A dream is a wish your heart makes. There's only one official airline at Walt Disney World, and that's Eastern, the airline that's working harder for your dollar. This next story is from the book The Wings of Man. It's a, a story by Jim Hart, and he tells how Eastern tried in-flight entertainment before movies came along. An unusual duty for a sales manager. In mid-1963, when I was sales manager in Washington, D.C., I was called upon to assist in a program of in-flight entertainment along with six other young, outgoing, and energetic gentlemen. We were brought to the New York home office where the program was explained by Vice President of Sales Bill Morissette and Director of Sales Marvin Byrd. 
We were directed to a beautiful shop in Midtown called After Six. There I was outfitted with a soft shirt complete with studs, tuxedo trousers, and a cummerbund, a bow tie, a searster sucker jacket, and the shiniest pair of black shoes. Given the title director of in-flight entertainment, we were sent to our prospective places to begin our tour of unusual duty. My duty station was Boston Logan Airport, and I had to be there at 6 p.m. each day during the trial period. My flight, a DC-8, left at 9 p.m. for Miami, and I was carrying a bingo board with holes in it to hold the balls and a briefcase loaded with gift certificates. At 7.30 p.m., a space near the boarding gate had been set aside for me to greet both passengers and those seeing them off, inviting them to enjoy cookies and punch before boarding. I told the passengers they were in for a treat and a chance to win some fabulous prizes. By 8.45 p.m., most passengers were on board, and it was time for me to make my way to the aft station jump seat under which I could store my equipment. After takeoff and after the stewardesses had made their announcements, I introduced myself again and explained that we were going to play bingo and that the stewardesses would pass out bingo cards for the passengers. The games began and I awarded a certain prize depending on who won. Lord forbid that, as it happened with one of uh, the other fellows, an 86-year-old lady won water ski lessons at Lee's Ski School on Biscayne Bay. The prizes were quite good, dinner at the Bar Harbor Hotel, a two-day trip by boat to the Bahamas, including all meals for two, dinners at Lady Miami Beach restaurants. One hectic event occurred when we hit some turbulence and all my bingo balls went flying off the board. All I could do was to continue calling numbers knowing that I had sufficient prizes to give away. In this situation, only four persons yelled bingo at the same time. We landed at Miami International Airport at 11 p.m., and I checked into the airport hotel, leaving a call for 6 a.m. in order to catch my flight back north at 7. It was a DC-7 with stops in Palm Beach, Orlando, Jacksonville, Raleigh-Durham, Richmond, and Washington National, where I left the airplane to run home, kiss my wife, pat my dog, and prepare to board the air shuttle at 4 p.m. for Boston and begin all over again. As a group, we were called into a meeting at the New York Home Office to critique our adventures, and it was a riot hearing some of the situations encountered by the other fellows. The program lasted for three months, and would you believe, movies came along right after our program. On one of my return flights north, and while standing in line to board the flight, a person behind me asked if I was one of the social directors for Eastern. Yes, can I help you, I replied. Yes, said the young couple. We won the boat trip to the Bahamas. It was at that moment that I realized they were a honeymoon couple. I asked how they enjoyed the trip. They explained that when they went to catch the boat, it had been taken to dry dock for some sort of repair, so they never made it to the Bahamas. I took their names and address, and when I returned, I called the home office and told them the situation. Eventually, we sent them to Puerto Rico and paid for two nights in a hotel. The adventure showed that Eastern was trying to find a method to take the fear of flying off the minds of travelers. By the looks of the faces on those who took part in our in-flight games, it really worked. Of all the ways that we can fly, of all the 
many years, the Retired Eastern Pilots Association, known as REPA, published a magazine for their members called Repartee. The magazine contained items and news of interest to the members, plus the members sent in stories of their life in the air. One such letter was written by Captain G.H. Pat Prince to Captain Van Rowland, who was the operations manager in Atlanta. The letter reads, Dear Captain Rowland, on my days off, I contracted to repair a building which was severely damaged by a storm. When I got to the building, I found that the storm had knocked some of the bricks off the top, so I rigged up a beam with a pulley at the top of the building and hoisted up a couple of barrels of brick. When I repaired the building, there were a lot of bricks left over. I hoisted the barrel back up again and secured the line at the bottom and then went up and filled the barrel with the extra bricks. Then I went to the bottom and cast off the line. Unfortunately, the barrel of bricks was heavier than I was, and before I knew what was happening, the barrel started down, jerking me off the ground. I decided to hang on, and halfway up, I met the barrel coming down and received a severe blow on the shoulder. I then continued up to the top, banging my head against the beam and getting my fingers jammed in the pulley. When the barrel hit the ground, it burst its bottom, allowing all the bricks to spill out. I was now heavier than the bricks, and so started down again at a high rate of speed. Halfway down, I met the barrel coming up and received severe injuries on my shins. When I hit the ground, I landed on the bricks, getting several painful cuts from the sharp edges. At this point, I must have lost my presence of mind because I let go of the line. The barrel then came down, giving me another blow on the head, and put him in the hospital. I respectfully request sick leave. Signed, Pat. For Harry Lindquist and myself, I'd like to thank you for tuning us in today. We hope you'll come back and listen to more stories and memories of the world's greatest airline. Stories of its people and planes as told by the Eastern family. If you missed the 8, 8 p.m. scheduled radio show, don't worry, as it will be in the archive on the Internet about 15 minutes after broadcast. You can go to www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie, C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E, the same way that you tuned us in to listen to tonight's episode one. The episodes are listed by numbers with the highest number, the latest to be broadcast. 
If you have a story about Eastern Airlines that you'd like to share with others, why not send it to us? Our email is eneilholland at yahoo.com. That's E-N-E-A-L, Holland, H-O-L-L-A-N-D, at yahoo.com. We're recorded and give you the credit on the air. Now, until next week, we'll sign off with this familiar theme music of our great airline, Eastern. Good night to the Eastern family. See you next week.